there's a hole in my trousers, dear pod listeners, dear pod listeners. Good afternoon and welcome to the Desert Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Brooks. Uh, I'm Fran Nielsen. Fran is absolutely cracking up about a joke that's not really that funny. <laughs> it made the joke might not even make it into the, the final edit. It won't. <laughs> oh dear. How anyway, are you doing? I'm good, I'm grand. I'm exhausted, but I'm good. I've got Fran reclining like an emperor today. It's a good look. Thank you. I actually, I got to go to the big Tesco's today. This is how exciting my life is. So I got to go to the big Tesco's. And uh, in the big Tesco's, they have a greater selection of grapes. So I've got some black grapes rather than, you know, the red grapes. And they're really good. And they also have a larger selection of soups. So I have, normally I take into work this terrible garden vegetable soup. And it needs so much pepper to even taste of anything good. And this week I have carrot and coriander. Oh. Yeah. And leek and potato, which is the the best soup out there, to be fair. So, yeah. Happy Sunday, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're recording on a Sunday because we've both had really busy weeks again. Fran did a hot second in London on Friday night, didn't Mm -hmm. you? I was there for about six hours, that's it. Which is fun. What did you do? What did you see? So, for Christmas, my parents very kindly got me... I say me, my dad got to go as well, so it's kind of (laughs) for him too. Uh, I went to see Jane Baez on her farewell tour. Um, I think it might have actually been her very final concert of the farewell tour. Oh, wow. But I'll have to check that. That's that's what she said, but I'm not sure that's right. Maybe that's just the European leg. Maybe. I feel like it's a weird place to finish. London, Not to finish finish in the US. Uh, But she was wonderful. She played more acoustic Dylan than Dylan has played himself in 30 years. Oh, wow. But yeah, really, really wonderful. Well, while you were doing that cultured thing, I was engaged in a rare event. And that is that I went out on Friday night. You did what? I went are, you still, are you still hungover? Oh, I wasn't hungover the next day. Oh, you didn't I, right then. <laughs> we didn't get home until 4am. Oh, um, that's a bit late. 4am is very late. I mean, I'm going to play tennis tonight and I won't get home until half nine. And I'm thinking, that's too late. <laughs> true that I mean we got we went to McDonald's on the way home and um this is a very tragic we went into McDonald's and it was like the time obviously when a shift had ended at the hospital so like there were loads of people in scrubs in the McDonald's and we came in significantly worse the wear for drink um yeah it was a good time what did you wear uh I wore black jeans and do you know that like velvet short sleeve top I've got yes yeah I want that I'm a big fan of all your velvet clothes I'm a velvet addict Francois oui you're on first I believe this week are you not oh yes that's me okay that's here we go Brexit you know what was really annoying was how last week when we recorded on the Sunday Mm -hmm. Saturday well whenever we recorded as we were recording I said I wouldn't be surprised if the Prime Minister cancelled the meaningful vote that was scheduled to happen the Wednesday just gone. 20 minutes after we finished recording, she cancelled it. 
which I was Teresa I know I was I felt vindicated but also annoyed because it meant my prediction wasn't out there before she actually made the announcement that I had Mm. so then instantly our episode was out of date but basically she did cancel the the meaningful vote and the 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 Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said the delay doesn't change anything for both the EU and Ireland with regards to negotiations over the backstop so we're kind of in the situation where she's delaying it for negotiations to buy more time to discuss the backstop and the EU and Ireland are just not budging on it uh, the Taoiseach again ruled out a time limit or unilateral exit clause for the backstop Um, stating that the whole point of the backstop is to give us an assurance that we won't see the emergence of a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, no matter what else happens as a consequence of Brexit. Of course, the paradox of that is that if they don't agree on anything, then we'll end up with a no-deal Brexit, and then there will inevitably have to be a hard border. And the Tornister, Simon Coveney, uh, stressed the EU's position. Um, I think this was actually quite some strong language. And I I fully agree with him, so fair play. He said, you can't ask Ireland to compromise on something as fundamental as a peace process and relationships linked to the Good Friday Agreement in order to get a deal through which is about placating a group within the Conservative Party who are insisting on moving the Prime Minister away from her own position. I mean, fair. Yeah. And on that note of placating groups within the Conservative Party, we mentioned the independent group TIG, as they've become known as. Uh, last week, it's worth saying that this week, no one else has joined them. But I think we could possibly see more movement there once we get we do get closer to a vote, which, by the way, has been rescheduled for the 12th of March. So, yeah, so that's that's scheduled for the 12th of March, which is just a mere, uh, just to highlight this, a mere 18 days before the UK is due to leave the EU. From the 12th until the 29th, the number of parliamentary days when the House of Commons is actually in session and sits, including the 12th, is 11 days. But, you know, there's no stress. Don't worry about it. Easiest deal in history, I think it was referred to by... uh, Is it David Davis? David Davis, yeah. Yeah. This rescheduling of the vote, cancelling of the vote... Rescheduling, cancelling, rescheduling, recancelling. Yes. And the the EU basically saying, well, much good, mate, do you? Um, <laughs> well, that's, this is all against the backdrop of uh, cross-party calls to make sure that the UK doesn't leave the EU without a deal. So uh, the Labour MP, Yvette Cooper, and the Conservative MP, Oliver Letwin, tabled a bill which would force the government to delay Brexit by extending Article 50 if a deal is not secured by the 13th of March. Um, and this comes after three cabinet, uh, three cabinet ministers signalled last week that they would vote for this bill, um, which is, in essence, rebelling against the government if there was no breakthrough. What happened was the Prime Minister herself actually announced that MPs would be given a vote on rejecting a no-deal Brexit on the 13th of March if her Brexit withdrawal agreement failed to pass through the House of Commons on the 12th of March. And if the MPs voted to reject a no deal on the 13th of March, a vote would then be held on the 14th of March on whether to extend Article 50. So the 12th, 13th, 14th of March are looking to be very exciting. And she said extending it, it wouldn't be beyond the end of June 2019, an extension. And she made it very clear that, you know, she's not really up for an extension. She doesn't want an extension. She wants to get her deal through the House of Commons. She wants us to leave on time on the 29th of March. What happened was the Cooper Letwin amendment, which was about rejecting no deal, they uh, the the actual wording for the bill 
they used for the amendment that was voted on. Uh, they actually used the Prime Minister's own words where she said that she would ex- give the vote for extending Article 50 if MPs voted to reject no deal. So in essence, because they used the Prime Minister's only the, the Prime Minister's own words, the the government had to then whip the Conservative Party to vote for it, which was a bit awkward. And there were lots of Twitter stories. Uh, I think Chris Grayling was he, he was in the wrong of, lobby, wasn't he? Exactly. There was a lot of confusion about from Conservative MPs about whether they were meant to be voting for it or not, and people just standing in the wrong place and was all a bit chaotic. I mean, we're unsurprised that Chris Grayling was in the wrong voting lobby. Well, I mean, does he know what a voting lobby is? Does he know he was there? To, to be vote? fair, this is a it's a somewhat archaic part of the British parliamentary system, isn't it? That like yeah, there are voting lobbies and but come on, he's a yeah. cabinet minister. Well he's been in there for a lot enough time that he knows how to do it. So. Well exactly anyway, so yes, so uh this ended up passing uh, by 502 votes to 20. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 Conservative MPs voted against it. Go them. Bets on who they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of abstentions from people as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh, yes, and the DUP, within the DUP, there was a great confusion about whether they were voting for this or not. Now, at the same time that they voted on this Cooper Amendment, the there were several other amendments one of which was Labour's alternative Brexit plan which was defeated by 323 votes to 240 now shortly before this Labour had the Labour leadership had come out and said if they if their Brexit alternative plan didn't pass then they would support a second referendum so after the defeat of their their alternative Brexit plan Jeremy Corbyn said we will back a public vote in order to prevent a damaging Tory Brexit or a disastrous no deal outcome. But he also confirmed that Labour would continue to push for a general election. So it was kind of lukewarm support that I think it's, you know, too little, too late. Really. Mm. Yeah. I would say so. Then we, we had a junior minister resigned from the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, uh, George Eustace, but this was kind of not really news because his, his letter he said he'd still vote for the Prime Minister's deal and basically he it, he quit because he was concerned that an extension to Article 50 could mean a long delay or that Brexit might not happen at all and he said the UK must be prepared to walk away without a deal. To be honest it's one of those weeks where a lot happened but none of it is really that massive but we'll just end on something that I know Katie will love because it refers to Chris Grayling. <laughs> so you might remember we talked about this in well we must have talked about it in January because we didn't exist in December but at the end of December the Department for Transport contracted three suppliers to provide additional freight capacity for lorries at ports other than Dover in the event uh, of a no-deal Brexit now one of the firms uh, Seaborne Freight had its contract cancelled after it emerged that it had no ships and had never run a ferry service before Excellent one. And had copied its terms and conditions from a food restaurant. Yes, literally copied and pasted them. On Thursday, I think it was, it emerged that the court, the the government was facing a court challenge from Eurotunnel, which is who runs the uh, the the trains in the Channel Tunnel. It emerged that the government was facing a court channel from Eurotunnel over the contracts it awarded because Eurotunnel said the contracts are handed out in a secretive way and wanted the contracts quashed 
And basically, Friday lunchtime, it came out that the uh, the government was going to settle with Eurotunnel for thirty three million. So <sighs> let. Honestly, the man is costing us so much money. I just don't understand, though, because anyone else, they'd have lost their job. Well, yes. Ages ago. Also, (laughs) I saw something this week about um, a company that Chris Grayling used to run prior to him running as an MP. Surely it doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) No, it went into liquidation. (laughs) Yeah, it would have to. Because of failure to pay tax. (sighs) Just perfect. So yeah, so that's it. So what what week are we heading into? The fourth of March. Yeah, so there's nothing really scheduled to happen this upcoming week. It'll be the final no. week. It's the final week of negotiations, basically, between the UK and the EU to discuss the backstop whether it will be renamed. It needs to be. Yeah, and this is interesting. Looking at you know whether it will um, get through the House of Commons because ultimately you have to have some kind of mechanism like the backstop. And as the Irish have been very good at pointing out, if you put a time limit on it or you need actual exit clause, then that defeats the point of the backstop. So those elements can't be included. So something like it has to be included. I think the DUP have had their moment. They've had their moment where they've taken up the stage and the, the limelight and caused their fuss and you know made it very clear how much they value our precious union. They'll probably get some more money thrown at them which would be nice. Have they used that particularly well in Northern Ireland? Yeah, to be fair, they have, actually. Okay. Especially in absence of uh, functional. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, the, the money has actually been very helpful. Yeah, so, you know, we just need to rename it, something in the backstop, slightly make some cosmetic changes, sell it as something else, stick that on, promise the DUP some money, probably vote for it, I think. And because of the Cooper Letwin amendment that passed, I don't think we can't really put off the votes for another week, which even by Theresa May standards, I think would be cutting it fine if we did put it off for another week. So I would expect that the vote will go ahead on the 12th. So it's just whether what can be done this week to ensure mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Who knows? And there's also there's, there, there are rumours that the that ERG MPs are actually going to vote for it now. Mm. so we'll see we could actually end up with this terrible brexit but um i still wouldn't be you know i'm 50 50 mm. who knows i actually yeah i've kind of reached the point of wake me up in september yeah basically yeah <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly you did go to the alliance party conference this weekend i did so it was a manic weekend for me because obviously went and saw big Joan. Flew to London in the evening, saw my brother for dinner. He came and joined me and my dad. He can sniff out a free dinner, that man. <laughs> um, went to the Jane Byers concert, then got the train home to my parents' house. So got home to the village at 1am, then had to be awake seven hours later to get my flight back to Belfast, which I almost missed. I had to run through the airport. I was the final person to board the plane. It was all very embarrassing. <laughs> Hated every second of it. Should really start wearing a sports bra to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> but to be it's fair, you had you, again. you had a stressful experience on the way there, didn't you? Because why didn't you tell our lovely listeners about your boarding card? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have very long to print my boarding pass, so I just went 
pressed print and it was still on the same settings as the previous thing I'd printed which had been on A3 which was actually me printing signs arrow signs for our event at the Alliance Party Conference so my boarding pass ended up getting printed on A3 paper (laughs) (laughs) and I don't I'm not one for uh, I, I hate wasting paper as well and I didn't have time to reprint it on A4 anyway. So I just had to roll with it. <laughs> so ginormous. So I looked like a bit of a mug. But to be fair, you know how you get to the scanning gate things and there's uh-huh. normally that delay where he's trying to read the barcode? Yeah. And they, the machine loved it. Never seen it open so quickly. <laughs> I remember I, uh, I once went to, actually it was last summer, when I had to fly up to Glasgow and then back down south again for a grand total of four hours and um oh, I remember this oh, past, yeah you... I basically got back to mine in Glasgow did what I needed to do and was like do you know what I'm just gonna go back to the airport because like the time of my flight was rush hour so I was yeah. like it's better if I'm there early and then you know I, I'm not worried about it but I ended up at the airport so early that they wouldn't let me through the barrier <laughs> so I had to sit and have a beer in the strange pub opposite the Celtic shop in Glasgow Airport, which was a hoot. Had to. Well, I mean, where else was I going to go? <laughs> you could have gone into the Celtic shop. <laughs> um, The Celtic shop is not great in Glasgow Airport. Oh, really? I'm biased because whenever I go to any football-related shop, I'm like, well, it's not as good as the Liverpool one, is it? Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we We actually have a Liverpool football club shop. In Belfast. Never walk alone. That's not something I get. I don't understand football. <laughs> so, whatever. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> to get back to the point. Um, the party conference, sorry, yeah. So then, went to the Alliance Party Conference. I did actually make it in time for the deputy leader and the leader's speeches, which mm-hmm. was good. And then we had our event um, in the afternoon for work. I've never been to a party conference before, so it's my first one the speeches themselves obviously you're speaking to people who are obviously loyal to the party and who agree with you it's always a case of preaching to the choir isn't it at a party conference exactly so they've they've bothered to come out on a very rainy yeah that was annoying for my shoes actually oh fran was wearing an absolutely banging outfit yeah fran now owns a pink suit and it's glorious so well i already had my neon pink blazer suit suit blazer but I now have a full trouser suit pale pale pink trouser suit and I wore it with uh red suede heels like stiletto heels they were good but good workwear is such a satisfying thing isn't it I know I know but my office is quite casual so I'd look like a fool if I turned away in that <laughs> so I like to get it out whenever I can Naomi Long who's lead of the party she is she is very likable she's very funny uh, she's very charismatic but what is partly is that uh, BBC uh, now allots a certain amount of time to uh, broadcasting the party speeches so party speeches and this is a criticism of all the parties not just alliance have become more focused on grand statements rather than the way party conferences are used to announce policy. And that is in part because you can't really announce any policies because there's no stormant. Mm. So what what can you say? I don't know. Obviously, the, the obvious things called for uh, all party talks to continue, called for the Secretary of State to actually do something, and called for a second vote on Brexit. 
mm-hmm. all interesting things I think thanks <laughs> it's, yeah it's been a bit of a strange week hasn't it in terms of uh UK politics because it feels like everything has happened and yet actually nothing has happened yeah which is like we talk about this every week we're like basically nothing has happened <laughs> well it's kind of this sort of little shifts which mm. all amount to, to something and then you have bigger things where Labour announced in their support a second referendum which feels like a big deal but it's actually only very little shift because them giving their support to it is almost too late for it to actually make any impact you have to the numbers wise it doesn't add up because conservatives who well MPs who are left in the conservative party who would vote for a second referendum is Dominic Grieve Nick Bowles maybe maybe but he's he's very he wants Norway yeah and then you have the 11 TIG MPs so they want a second referendum then all of the SNP obviously um the Lib Dems mm, do the Green Party support it Plaid but you know those numbers so very few of those and then even the Labour leadership coming out saying they support it well not all of the Labour MPs are going to support it you've got Kate Hoey who want no deal so yeah so Labour coming out now and saying they support it it's kind of oh well look we can turn around to our members who we know support and who support a second referendum and say oh look you know we did come out in support of it and it's not our fault it didn't happen but it's sort of well you've come out now at the point where it looks very unlikely that it could happen when it's politically convenient for you to come out for it so that's the situation we're in right america in all its glory so i think the first thing we should talk about is the hanoi summit which occurred this week between uh u.s president donald trump and north korean leader kim jong-un which ended very abruptly essentially collapsed with no deal or agreement yay no deal (laughs) i don't think we're very surprised on that front no we um we've spoken about this briefly before Mm mm-hmm um, but it's just worth us reiterating that we do not agree with these negotiations. Not because we don't think they're import- they're not important to have, but we don't agree with the way they've been rushed into and the unstable nature of both leaders and how you shouldn't send your top person into a negotiation first. And it takes years and years of planning and backroom talks before you get to this stage, which Trump has clearly bypassed. So it's not necessarily so much the fact that the talks are happening that's the problem, it's the way the talk, we've got to this stage. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a subtlety to negotiations like this. And I know that seems like a really obvious statement, but like I think it is worth iterating that it is foolish to kind of assume that this is a game because it's not. I mean, we could go into the ins and outs of the summit, but we're, I mean, no one's surprised. This is the kind of outcome that we expected, that there was going to be no deal. But I think actually what's really interesting is the response in the US to his actions and his his comments about Kim. So in 2015, um, an American student called Otto Wombier went to North Korea as a tourist. As he attempted to leave to come home, he was arrested at uh, Pyongyang airport and accused of attempting to steal a propaganda poster after which he was convicted and sentenced to 15 years hard labour. 
Obviously, that occurred during the Obama presidency. In June 2017, he was returned to the United States, but he wasn't released, you know, and walked out of prison. He returned to the US with a catastrophic brain injury and he died uh, just a few days after his release. And he was, he was yeah. 22. So he was younger than you and I are currently. The opinion of uh, medical staff in the United States was that Otto Warmbier had been significantly tortured. There was suggestions of um, he had been injected with various things. Um, there was an argument made by the uh, North Koreans that he had contracted botulism. It's all a bit foggy, a bit murky, but essentially what it looks like is that he was he was tortured and... Yeah, there was no way he was doing hard labour in the state that he was in. No, 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 no. After Warmbier was released, to Trump's credit, and we should give him credit on this front, he was in contact with um, Mr. and Mrs. Warmbier, and from everything that they've said, they said he was very gracious about it, he was very supportive, you know, he expressed deep regret for the fact that their son had died. They said that they felt they had been respected and it was considerate and gracious, and, you know, when Mm -hmm. they're the people involved, we need to take them at their word at that, that... so fair play to Trump on that front. However, after this summit this week, Trump essentially said uh, of Kim that he was ignorant to the kind of treatment that Warnbier was receiving when he was in prison. And to quote what Trump said, he said, I don't believe that he would have allowed that to happen. It just wasn't to his advantage to allow that to happen. Those prisons are rough. They're rough places and bad things happen. I really don't believe that he, I don't believe that he knew about it. He tells me that he didn't know about it, and I will tell oh, yeah, him well, word. Trump's said that he, you know, really likes Kim. He says that they get on and so on and so forth. So uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wombier then released a statement saying, we have been respectful during the summit process. Now we must speak out. Kim and his evil regime are responsible for the death of our son, Otto. Kim and his evil regime are responsible for unimaginable cruelty and inhumanity. No excuses or lavish praise can change that. Yeah. They've just been complete symbols of dignity in what is obviously the face of a horrendous situation. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think it's it it's awful. There, we can talk about kind of like the foreign policy implications or like the domestic political implications, but just like on a human level, Kim is a man who rules over a country that tortures, imprisons, murders its citizens, they are incredibly oppressed. Yeah, it's unacceptable. Yeah, end of. Which is which is why you know these talks are important. Yes, because actually, it's this is not a case of oh, we should just sanction North Korea, never speak to them again, and hey ho, what happens to the North Korean citizens is you know bad luck. That's not what we're saying. No, but to suggest that Kim has no idea what's happening in his own country. This is a nation where. I mean, for goodness sake, you get 15 years hard labour for stealing a propaganda poster. Yeah. We are not talking about a bastion of liberal human rights, anything like that. And so to excuse in any way, shape or form that kind of behaviour is it is just completely unacceptable. Yeah. I think Sherrod Brown, senator um, for Ohio, he released a really good statement. He said, North Korea murdered Otto Warmbier and the President of the United States has a responsibility to make sure they face the consequences. Anything short of that is unacceptable. Which, yeah, I mean, that sums it up entirely, doesn't it? That Yeah, that's yeah. the kind of leadership you should be hearing 
from the president not oh well he told me he wasn't involved so he wasn't involved yeah I really like him people say I shouldn't like him but I do like no so so moving on from what is a really horrible and very depressing story in that regard to yeah I mean it's not hugely more cheerful is um Michael Cohen testified (laughs) to congress this week yes he did Former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, he testified in front of the House Oversight Committee. Um, He's previously pled guilty on a number of charges related to the 2016 election and his relationship with Trump. He will be going to prison. Happy days! Indeed. So he's pled guilty to financial crimes, bank fraud, campaign finance violations and lying to Congress. He's been sentenced to three years in prison and he is going to begin serving that sentence in May Mm -hmm. so his opening remarks to congress this week were incredible I I am desperate to know who his lawyers have got drafting his public statements at the moment because maybe he's doing it himself unlikely (laughs) they are actually just incredibly crafted and I think I don't think I ever would have said that about Michael Cohen, but like I was reading the full transcript earlier and I was like, really, whoever is doing this needs to be in a better job because they're really good at this. So we should also note before I kind of talk about what he said, um, Matt Gates, who is a, a representative from Florida, has been uh, reported to the Florida bar and um, to various ethical bodies within Congress for comments that he made about Michael Cohen on Twitter. Mm-hmm essentially from about threatening him on Twitter. So we will see where that goes, but it induced quite a significant amount of furor among the Republican Party. So essentially what Michael Cohen has said is that there's fair reason that people are going to doubt his credibility because he he lied to Congress previously, but he has produced documents to support this statement that he's made in the line of questioning, etc., which would essentially demonstrate that the information is accurate he says he regrets working for Trump. He re- regrets accepting a job with him. He's ashamed of his own failings and he pled guilty in the Southern District of New York because of that. He said he concealed Trump's illicit acts. Um, and then he just said, I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man. He is a cheat. He was a presidential candidate. He knew that Roger Stone was talking with Julian Assange about a WikiLeaks drop of Democratic National Committee emails. So this statement is, it has really opened the door to investigating Trump further. And at the moment, I think the likelihood is that uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka and probably Jared Kushner will all be subpoenaed to appear before Congress, which will be very interesting because Jared Kushner has come under a lot of heat over the past week because of the fact that he lied on his security clearance documents and he didn't feel a load of financial transactions with um, various foreign entities. So, I also feel like they're the type of people who will just crumble in front of the kind of pressure they're going to face if they're brought before Congress. Well, also the House Oversight Committee has some heavy hitters on it. Oh, yes, which I'm but sure you're about to talk about. Indeed. Um, so when Michael Cohen was, was testifying, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who is a freshman uh, representative for Queens in, in Queens in the Bronx, New York. We're a big fan of her on this pod. 
yes, I, I like her as a person. I don't agree with everything that she stands for, but I really like her as a person. I think she's good for American politics, if that makes sense. Yeah. She, yes, absolutely majestic performance. It was only a five, so they get five minutes each, and she went through, and she basically, she asked Michael Cohen a load of questions, and when he said he couldn't answer something, her immediate response was just, who would know the information that I want to, I want to know? So he tells yeah. you know, it's often people like Alan Weisselberg, who's now CFO of the Trump Organization and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where will I find the documents that support this information? So, and she's just incredibly precise. She's very polite. She's not, you know. Yeah, and I think I read a good article about this this week in that because they only get five minutes each, a lot of, uh, including Democrats, a lot of Congress members use their five minutes to make speeches mm-hmm. and to grandstand rather than asking precise questions that actually yeah. press the case against Cohen further yes whereas she was very much about this isn't about me and it isn't actually about you it's just about what you know yeah if that yeah so um so she was very good at really that. good yeah and I also then saw some stuff on Twitter which was I thought excellent just on the fact that she didn't even take up her full five minutes because she got the information she needed yes but also that performance is the result of you know weeks and weeks of preparation by her and her staff so that she walked in completely prepared to deal with what was there yeah and there was just a lot of it looked like the GOP were just floundering in there's certainly arguments to be made about the fact that he's lied to congress before and how much of you know his his testimony can be taken as as gospel given the fact that he's probably trying to get out of yeah um, you know any other charges and he's hoping okay i've got three years and then i can be cooperative and behave now and the hope yeah that- and there's been chat about okay if if it comes to the fact that michael cohen's testimony demonstrates that Trump is corrupt and needs impeaching, etc. And if that goes through, then what would happen about pardons and so on and so forth? Yeah. Because um, a pardon isn't going to come from Trump at this point. He's made that very clear. So. Uh, throw you under the bus and not come back for you. Yes, exactly. Meanwhile, slightly different with Paul Manafort, which we spoke about last week. Um, yes. But yeah, Cohen, you know, he confirmed that Trump asked him to pay Stormy Daniels, who is an adult film star, a large sum of money to keep quiet. You know, he's got checks which have Donald Trump's signature on them. Yeah. So I thought this was a really interesting comment, actually, that he made. So in in his opening statement, he said, when I say conman, and this is Cohen referring to Trump, I'm talking about a man who declares himself brilliant, but directed me to threaten his high school, his colleges and the college board to never release his grades or SAT scores. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I saw this. Someone tweeted, they said, what what straight A student wouldn't want to show off the fact they got straight A's? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and Cohen essentially dobs Trump in about the fact that he completely his father paid off doctors to claim that he had a bone spur so that he didn't have to perform in Vietnam so yes the the privilege is astonishing indeed and actually I think this is a good comment for us to end on in this regard Mm -hmm. um so towards the end of his testimony Michael Cohen says I'm going to prison and I have shattered the safety and security that I tried so hard to provide for my family my testimony certainly does not diminish the pain I caused my family and friends. Nothing can do that. 
and I have never asked for, nor would I accept, a pardon from President Trump. And by coming today, I have caused my family to be the target of personal, scurrilous attacks by the president and his lawyer, trying to intimidate me from appearing before this panel. Mr. Trump called me a rat for choosing to tell the truth, much like a mobster would do when one of his men decides to cooperate with the government. So I think... Yeah. It's damning. (laughs) Yeah, that's... I would say a pretty accurate... Yes. Yeah, wow. Wow. There you go. Um, Gosh, everyone's going to hell, aren't they? Well, I mean, he does say at the end of it, he says, I'm not a perfect man. I've done things I'm not proud of and I will live with the consequences of my actions for the rest of my life. But today I get to decide that the example I set for my children and how I I attempt to change how history will remember me. I may not be able to change the past, but I can do right by the American people here today. Yeah, he didn't write that. No. (laughs) No. And I think he needs to go to prison and he needs to serve his time for what he's done. But like, yes, if you finally got to the point where you realise I'm not getting out of this, do the right thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, do the right thing anyway, but like. Yes. Gosh. Mm. But I would, yeah, I would really recommend um, reading the full transcript of his statement. I will post it on the Twitter. There's a good Vox article. Um, yeah, no, I'd I'd actually read the the bit about the rat and the mobster, mm. but it's uh, it actually didn't hit me just how hard hitting that was until you spoke mm. it out. Sometimes that's the thing though, and I think that's why it is. If you don't want to read the transcript, go and watch the video of it because it's just like yeah. seeing it spoken in Congress, and you know that's there forever now. That's yeah. I know the internet is forever, and you know people can drag stuff up from whenever they like, but actually. Despite the fact the internet is forever, it's so fast moving that we forget about things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that statement being in the annals of congressional history, you know, it will be recorded and it will be on congressional record, I think is it's it's powerful. So mm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Absolutely. That's kind wow. of Wow. Yeah. And so, um, what's coming up next week in the US, do you know? Well, so Cohen has a bit more um, of testimony to give. Give. Sorry, I can remember what word <laughs> I was then. So I was like, what is the word that I need? There's that coming up. We've obviously spoken that Bernie launched his 2020 bids. It's looking like Beto is probably going to run. It's looking like Joe Biden's probably going to run. There's been some chat about Sherrod Brown. Um, so I imagine we will start to see sort of like the end of the announcement period. Um, yes, speaking on Beto, actually, and this was interesting, there's a documentary coming out called Running With Beto, mm-hmm. and the tagline is, run like there's nothing to lose. And we can put the poster on Twitter. But it's yeah. Running With Beto, and the, the the poster is sort of him from behind, and then there's a big crowd, or, but he's the focus. So that's coming out. Um and I think actually the announcement of that is probably going to be in line with, I think it's coming out on the 9th of March. So okay. I imagine that coming out will be co- will coincide quite nicely with an announcement should he decides to, uh-huh. to run for president. But it was interesting because I saw this on Twitter and people were, and I hadn't actually seen this before, but people don't like him. And this isn't mm-hmm. coming because obviously Republicans hate him. But uh, this is coming from Democrats, and their problem was that, ugh, it's all about him and his kind of state yeah. complex and how the documentary is about 
what running with him is like rather than the policies that he ran on if that makes sense yeah I can see it I think it's interesting because actually what has happened with this presidential run is that people have started to realize that who they are really matters so for example Bernie Sanders who during 2016 absolutely resolutely refused essentially to be like this is who I am he was very much like these are what these are the ideas that I've got and we've spoken at length about how we actually think that he didn't really get it right and he's got a bit of a problem but now he's very much talking about this is my history this is you know where I come from and he's he's taken that from people like Elizabeth Warren who every time she goes to a campaign rally she talks about being part of the squeezed middle class and talking about nearly losing their home and about you know the work that she's done to protect essentially the middle class families like hers so I think it will be interesting because we're now in a kind of point where actually personality and and carving out that idea of who you are, not just what you stand for, yes. is really important. And that's also that the greater crossover or the realization that what you stand for is actually part of who you are. Exactly. Yes. And so, it, and I think this was an issue that Hillary had was she tried the only thing that she carved out in terms of this idea of identity was, oh, I'm the first woman. Yes. Um, and actually it would have been way better for her to say, this is who I am. I, you know, I was married to the governor for Arkansas and I decided that I wasn't going to be just, you know, someone who, yeah, who just benefited from the taxpayer and got to hold tea parties. You know, I was going to keep being a lawyer who represented women and children. I was a first lady and I was passionate about healthcare. Um, I was secretary of state. Um, yeah. And all of these things are my experiences but they also tie into my identity my identity is about x it's about y and actually i think i like hillary clinton a lot you know i really admire her but i do think it's a problem that i sometimes think oh actually i don't know who she is i've read all her books i wanted her to win the 2016 presidential election i believed Mm -hmm. in the policies that she espouses but i can tell you who she is yeah and then no that's that's probably fair and then when things like, you know, the fact that she carries hot sauce with her because she really likes spicy food, when that came out, that then seemed like a kind of a token. It seemed a bit like I'm trying to be interesting rather than sort of, do you know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. So I think actually maybe we'll see. There's a lot more of a tendency to to, to carve out this idea that identity matters. And that identity matters because 2016 demonstrated that identity politics is important in the States. And I think that's more mm-hmm. than just like you know often the term identity politics is used quite dismissively and it's used to sort of talk about like oh identity politics people choosing pronouns like all of that kind of thing and it's it's mocked a lot but actually that isn't what it is and if anything Trump's election demonstrated identity politics among the white working class more than ever yeah yeah and you see it even in the way that like if you look at the branding for the current uh presidential candidates for the Democratic Party John Delaney is pretty much the only one who's got the kind of like branding that's fairly traditional it's just like John Delaney for president 2020 type thing yeah it's like Kamala for the people you know it's Bernie Mm. 2020 it's very Amy for America it's this like it's personal it's yes yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out on that yeah yeah but I think that's that's all I've got really to say about America anywho arts and culture Arts and culture. Uh, am I going first? What have you been reading? So, Fintanutal still going strong. I think 
This is better than the other one, though. I don't know. It's only been a couple of weeks, no? Mm, I think this might be the fourth week or third week. Anyway. You're savouring it. it. Yes. So I did actually want to discuss this. So when I started this, I didn't quite think this was going to go the way it has done. Uh Uh-huh. But basically what it is, is each chapter, he uses a different analogy to explain Brexit. So oh, the first... like Fifty Shades of Grey again. Yes. So the first chapter was Fifty Shades of Grey. That's horrible. Yes. But it wasn't just that. It was kind of a general introduction. Then uh, one one chapter, he goes into food and something about prawn cocktail crisps. But the chapter I most enjoyed... <laughs> was uh it uses it's not so much an analogy but it's more uh this is the angle I'm going to take to explain Brexit so in mm-hmm. some ways it can be quite an exhausting book because it's just you're reading it and every chapter kind of makes the same points but it makes it from a different perspective mm-hmm. which I think is partly why it's taken me so long because it's sort of you need to read a whole chapter at a time otherwise you forget where you're going but it's too much to read two chapters straight after mm-hmm. each other mm-hmm. although it is really really well written but the chapter I've most enjoyed, and it's because I it's something I've picked up on myself, whereas the other things I think are little nuances that you couldn't really pick up without doing much research, is the chapter on World War Two. Oh, right, okay. And about the idea of the sort of uh, victim of invasion idea that Britain has of itself, even though the UK hasn't really been successfully invaded since... 1066. Exactly. So, <laughs> but... Well... Mm. I guess we've had minor ones, skirmishes with various parts of the UK, but yeah, basically 1066. Yeah, so it's very interesting. And then it goes into the way language has been used throughout both the referendum and then the subsequent negotiations. Uh, that's very much like World War II rhetoric of, you know, we the Dunkirk spirit and we got through this before, we'll get through it again. The way it's been referred to is like rationing and, you know, the good war spirit of the home front, keeping things in check like it won't do us any harm. But also um, everyone who's espousing that never lived through the war. Yes, exactly. Like, essentially, the older end of baby boomers were all born after the war. That's the yes. point. They're baby boomers. <laughs> like yes. But also the idea of uh, Germans. Yeah, well, that's those silly comments from Marc Francois and that kind of thing. Uh, yes. But I think also just from personal experience, so my sister, uh, bless her, helps out with our local Riding for the Disabled Association. Mm-hmm. And she has been doing it since she was 11. Uh, she does it every weekend and during some holidays more mm-hmm. so. The woman who runs it is in her 80s and they're very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. And when the Brexit referendum came around... My sister was only 16 and the the woman and her, they were driving home and they were discussing it. And she was saying to my sister, oh, I really don't know how to vote because I know a lot of young people want us to vote Remain. Mm-hmm. But I've lived through German occupation before and I don't want to see it happening again. It's just like that statement is just so inaccurate in so many ways. When were we occupied by the Germans? Unless like, you lived in the Channel Islands. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so that kind of, but that kind of rhetoric isn't isn't rare, this idea of... No, 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 no. And so I think that was a very interesting chapter. So yeah, it's definitely a book I recommend. The way both world wars, actually, the way both world wars have played into our psyche of our identity, our national identity, of our finest hour, etc., has been very, very interesting. Yeah. Mm. I want to find some quote from this. 
but this is from so there's one chapter of the book which is about uh, the charge of the light brigade and all that oh, and Arabs, yeah. etc so he says brexit is about many things but one of them is the feeling that there is much larger rot to stop a natural order of things that is being eroded by feminism multiculturalism immigration globalization and islam emotionally brexit is fueled by anxiety asked on the eve of the referendum how eu membership made them feel voters were given a list of eight words four positive happy hopeful confident proud and four negative angry uneasy disgusted and afraid and invited to choose up to four of them Feelings of unease dominated with 44% selecting this word as against just 26% who went for the most popular positive term, hopeful. No other positive word was selected by more than 14%. Overall, just 32% chose one or more positive words, while fully 50% chose one or more negative words. Twice as many felt angry as felt happy. The great solve to anxiety is the sense of control. The Brexit campaign spoke directly to this need with its brilliant slogan, Take Back Control. But this is exactly what the grand tradition of British heroic failure would never have articulated. There could, no, there could be no back about it. Its fundamental gesture was, I, as an English gentleman, and thus by extension, we English, am in control. Brexit in this sense has to concede a great deal of psychological ground. It cannot afford the supreme self-confidence of treating triumph and disaster as twin imposters. Where the grand tradition laughs in the face of fear... Brexit had to tap into deep anxiety about the loss of status. It had to somehow put together two fears, the older one about Britain's loss of status in the world after 1945, and the newer concern that the privileges of whiteness were being eroded. Wow. Mm. He's such a good writer. Mm, he is, yeah. His it's, articles are always excellent. It's just ridiculously so, good. Yeah. Um, but yes, so we're still plugging away with that one. I wonder nice. if I finish it before the 29th of March. <laughs> I think is my aim. But there definitely needs to be a follow-up book because this is yeah. very all, why did Brexit happen? I think yes. there, could, there could be a whole other book on the negotiations. Uh, please, no one pinch the border and the Irish dimension. Please, because that's my PhD topic, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... I mean, books will be written about Brexit for years and years to come. Mm, so indeed, we are where we are. Um, but other cultural things. So last weekend, just after we recorded, I then went to the cinema to see On the Basis of Sex, mm-hmm. which is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so I think, and I want to put this out there because I didn't really mention it last weekend, and then the Oscars happened. Uh, and you were really excited about seeing On the Basis of Sex, weren't you? Yes, so I think last weekend I saw Green Book and I saw On the Basis of Sex and both of them were two films I was really excited to see and both of them I left feeling like they were good but just slightly underwhelmed and I think I thought they were good because I enjoyed both of them but I think having some time to reflect on it I think I enjoyed them both because they're both good stories and I think On the Basis of Sex it's it's a really, really great story and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is actually in it at the very Mm -hmm. end closing sequence has her she's walking up the steps to the supreme court it's a good story it's a feel-good story uh it's a relevant story in 2019 she's a woman especially the trump administration like mm-hmm. it's, it's a good story but i don't think it was necessarily the, the best produced or acted film in the world green book on the other hand i think was very well acted mm-hmm. and it's a story that if you're white makes you feel good because it's ah, oh, isn't this nice it's a mm-hmm. uh, it's a nice story about how people got on during a very racist era. And I mm-hmm. think that does, you do have to check your privilege slightly 
to say why am I enjoying this in the same way that you know I love the help mm-hmm. obviously a lot of criticism has since come out that it's it almost airbrushes it to make it seem like racism is no longer a problem yeah obviously it is and I, I don't think you know I don't think it was Oscar winning film but then a load of win the Oscar but I think as far as I can tell I, don't, I really don't know enough about films and I haven't seen enough of them but I think it was from the the from the list it had to choose from it had to pick that one basically because right. other other films were surrounded by scandal uh, I think was Bohemian Rhapsody one of them that was nominated or something and that's had a huge scandal with the directors and the producers then the favorite was nominated but I think a film about an English queen who even the English haven't heard of is a bit too niche then there was a film which was produced by Netflix but I think there was a lot of politics about not wanting to award best picture to a Netflix film essentially and it left you with Green Book so they had to award it to Green Book whereas I think something like Black Klansman which we've talked about before is much better because it at least has the audacity to finish with that sequence about how racism hasn't gone away even though the film itself does does centre around a black white relationship during the 60s and 70s that's an interest I I have not seen Green Book so I, I want to see it to you know yeah I think it is very well acted Mahershala Ali I mean he's a brilliant actor yeah um and I saw him in Moonlight which won best Oscar best picture Oscar two years ago I think it was and that's a brilliant brilliant film so you know he is very good but even he himself uh, he after the film was produced he came out and said you know I did the best with the material that I was given mm-hmm. so that's all a bit interesting um yeah. so yes but still worth seeing yeah. I mean I didn't I did enjoy it I think it's just mm-hmm. a question of why did you enjoy it so that's from me Have you been up to me? I've read a lot because obviously I'm still getting over this vile illness so mm-hmm. read some fiction this week which is Lovely first time in a long time so I read a book by Christine Mangan called Tangerine it's her Mm. debut novel it's already been like suggested that it's going to be made into a film by George Clooney's production company okay um with potentially Scarlett Johansson in it Mm -hmm. um basically it is a psychological thriller and it's set in Tangier in 1956 uh it's got kind of like a LGBT storyline and love affair in it and well, isn't it LGBT film month or something? I'm not sure. I don't want to. I don't want to kind of like reveal too much about it because it's worth just reading, mm-hmm. knowing as little about it as possible. I think because like some people have really loved it and some people have really hated it. I thought it was really good. I don't think the love affair between two women is going to shock anyone like in today's age, but I think it is well written about the fact that like it would be shocking for the time. Right. Okay. Which um, is difficult to do. Yeah. And I don't know if Christine Mangan is writing from a gay perspective or anything like that. So, like, I, I can comment on that. But I thought it was really well, really well written. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I really liked the description of um, Tangier. Like, I thought it was very well done. So there's a really nice line, which is this strange, lawless city that belonged to everyone and no one. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was, there's a, a really nice sort of, like, fl- fluidity to the way she writes. So I would recommend it. Uh, and I also finished Howard's End is on the Landing by Susan Hill, which is, I've actually read before, but it is basically, she reads through, like, for a year she decides not to buy any new books and she just reads through, like, the ones she owns already or, like, ones she's previously reread. Oh, because um, that's different that you were rereading it. <laughs> indeed, yes. She's written a book called 
Jacob's room is not his own I think which is mm-hmm. about she reads through um for a year she kind of like reads and travels and it's also very well written she's written thousands of books I don't not literally she's written a lot like she wrote the woman in black and that kind of thing so oh um yeah so that's very good and then I've just started inspired by that book started rereading one of my favorites called The Optimist's Daughter by Eudora Welty which is just a really good book and I would really recommend it to anyone lots of fiction indeed Mm. so I think I'm gonna have to get back on the non-fiction horse this week but The Optimist's Daughter is quite short so probably finish it this evening yeah and if you've read it before I think you do read quicker yes 100% it's just so Eudora Welty is often uh compared with Faulkner and I also really like Faulkner but I just think she she writes in such an exquisite way and she's really good at like getting under her character's skin a little bit and like you come away from her books feeling a little bit like you don't know whether you like or hate the people that she's written but they're very Very real and yeah I think it's it's good in that regard that it's very um she gets into kind of like the human condition and I say that in inverted commas because it is a bit of a arsey turn of phrase but like she's very good at it so would recommend mm. everyone will be pleased to know I have not rewatched the Harry Potter films this week <laughs> that's a true sign that better. <laughs> yeah so um yeah well, there was mum and dad's pub quiz this week one of the oh, yeah. questions was um name name uh five of the harry potter books and obviously they couldn't do it to be fair the other day i was sitting in class really bored and i was thinking about how many i watched and then i was like i just can't remember what the title of the fourth one is took me ages to remember it's the goblet of fire yeah hey did you put your name in the goblet of fire (laughs) oh my goodness he said calmly thanks michael (laughs) gambon so nice that we've got a uh, you know Hollywood actor on uh, on the pod. Thank you. I'm <sighs> here all week. <laughs> Anywho, well, right on that we, note. Yeah, sorry. Also, sorry. There's been no baby pod. I had to present a case on Friday, and I just didn't have time. So how did that? How did that go? I won. Woohoo! That's my girl. Indeed. Does that mean are you going to do this week? We'll work it out. I've not decided yet. It's a mystery, everyone. Just keep you on your toes. Yeah. Wouldn't like to be predictable. Absolutely not. But predictably, this has gone on too long and we've rambled. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. We're under two hours of recording at the moment. Right. Well, we will speak to you next week. So have a wonderful week, everyone. Enjoy. Bye. Bye. you for everything you're worth very little (laughs) maybe i could get your book collection no don't take the things (laughs) i love from me or oh no you know what your your vinyl recorder and mamma mia 2 soundtrack literally the only one of my vinyls that you want yes (laughs) i have a great collection of vinyls that i'm very proud of and the one you want from me (laughs) is the mamma mia 2 soundtrack